Hi, I'm Pastor James, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church in Hillsborough, Oregon. Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. Our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so each weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please visit our website at www.isunrise.com, I-S-O-N-R-I-S-E.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you, grow along the journey of life with others, develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost, and then learn how to lead other people to know Jesus Christ. Now, on to our weekend message. I have a little tradition that helps me connect with uh, holidays, historical events. And it started because obviously I'm a pastor and it's Christmas time. So I need to read the Christmas story and talk about that. And, and then Easter and the Easter story and talk about that. But a number of years ago, I opened up the Oregonian on the 4th of July and I discovered the Declaration of Independence. And I know the Oregonian didn't come up with that document, but they reproduced it every year. And I began reading it. And every year on the 4th of July, I read the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if you've had a chance to read it. Uh, it it's, it's a difficult read if you don't know the background and what's going on around it. I know we you know, hear about these things in our schools. We get a little picture of it. But the more we read, the more we can understand what was going on in the hearts and the minds of people and the emotions of people at the time. So I enjoy that, although it, it's a challenge to try to put myself in that place several hundred years ago for us to declare independence from Great Britain and say we're our own country. But it's an amazing document, amazing document to read. And then uh, on uh, Lincoln's birthday, I read the Gettysburg Address. That was a high school assignment of mine to memorize it. I love the Gettysburg Address. And just to understand what was going on in that culture and the current of our Civil War. And it's just beautiful, beautiful words. Very small, very easy to read. And then on uh, Martin Luther King Day, which is tomorrow, um, I'll read his I Have a Dream speech. I even have a little video clip of it. It's a powerful, powerful document, powerful statement about the struggle for civil rights for African-American brothers and sisters. Great things going on. But a couple years ago, I stumbled upon letters from a Birmingham jail. I don't know if you've read that or not. It's not that long. It's a very long letter, to be honest, but it's not very long as something to read. And I, I loved reading that, and I, I do it every once in a while because it helps me understand where Dr. King was four months before he went to the March on Washington to deliver his I Have a Dream speech. And in this letter, he's in jail, and he's in jail because of his uh, nonviolent protests, basing it after the message of Jesus and the words of Christ. And, and so, so here he is. He's frustrated. In fact, it says over and over again in the document, he's disappointed. He's so disappointed. Just note how many times he mentions he's disappointed in the American church. And predominantly he's speaking about the white church in the South, that none of the pastors were standing up. In fact, they were opposing him and his method of nonviolence in protesting. It'd be better if you just kind of go away and let history just kind of develop on its own. And he wouldn't do that. And then finally, after talking about disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, he turns and he says, all that has resulted in disgust because we are the church. We are the people of God and racism should have no part in our hearts. And I'm here to tell you that sadly racism is in our hearts. Um, we all struggle in so many ways with these issues. And we might think, well, you know, racism was something from the civil rights era. 
But the irony is not lost on me that Monday is Martin Luther King Jr. Day and Friday is Inauguration Day. From Monday to Friday, there's a whole lot of racism going on. There's a whole lot. In the last 18 months, my heart has been broken over and over again by the racist rhetoric that's been shouted out on Twitter and on Facebook and in the media. And I, th- I just, I thought we were better than that as people. I thought we had moved beyond that, but we haven't. Racism is the belief that your group, whatever that might be, is somehow superior to everybody else. In in a nutshell, that's racism. It doesn't have to be a black and white thing. It could be a brown and white thing. Hey, it could be a brown and brown thing. You'd be surprised where racism exists in the hearts of people. Racism is the thought that somehow my group is superior. I love what C.S. Lewis uh, talked about it in one of his lectures that ended up being transcribed. And you could read about the phenomenon of the inner ring. Now, this is what Lewis said. He said, there is a natural propensity in our hearts, demonically driven, to consider our group, our circle of people as a special group and to allow certain people into that inner ring. And to exclude certain people from the inner ring. That there is a depravity in our heart. When we look out and we say, my group, whatever that might be, we are somehow better than everybody else. And, and our group is going to hold on to that power. We're going to hold on to those doors. And we're only going to let certain people in as we determine they merit their worth. We close the door to keep people out. And that's a sickness. That's a sin. That's where it stems. It comes from our heart. And I believe that if a heart is filled up with Jesus, there should be no room in that heart for racism. There's no room. If if Jesus is king of your heart, for there to be any ill racist feelings toward other people. I mean, you might have struggles with people. You might have disagreements with people. But if your disagreement is about a color or about an ethnicity or about an economic or social kind of thing, that's racism. Now, sadly, the church, man, we've done horrible with this. We've, we've been a horrible example of people fighting racism. And, and you, you don't have to just go back, you know, 50 years. You don't have to go back 200 years, although you can see it there. You can go back to the very beginning of the church. Because here's Jesus standing there at the end saying, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teach these new disciples to obey all the commands they've given you. It's like, go. And then just before he leaves in Acts 1, he says, you are therefore going to be my witnesses. And you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is super safe if you're a Jew, because that's who he's talking to, because that's like the the king of everything. The world centers around that. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Okay, that's going to be easy. In Judea, that's the countryside. That's like, you know, you know, going somewhere else in our county. No problem. And in Samaria, that now the heat begins to be turned up. Because Samaria is filled with Samaritans. So you just learned something in church, by the way. I dare you to not learn something today. Samaritans, and Samaritans are half-breeds. Half Jew, half Gentile. They were hated by the Jewish people. They're the other race of people. They live on the other side of the tracks. And and they didn't want to do that. And and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth, the Gentiles. And you're going to tell them of this message of salvation through Jesus Christ as Messiah, as King. 
They didn't want to do that. And, and so you see the early church struggled for decades. They don't go out. And then they're finally pushed out by persecution. And they go into Samaria. And the Samaritans believe in Jesus. And the, the, the Jews are amazed at this. And then all of a sudden, in Acts uh, chapter 10, Peter is pushed out to go to the Gentiles. And not just any Gentile, but a Roman, a, a centurion, someone who's in charge of uh, a great number of people. And, and now this guy in his whole house believes in Jesus. And then Peter comes back to Jerusalem. And they, you know... Peter's in hot water because he's been hanging out in the home of a Gentile and you're not supposed to do that. And, you know, that's just not right. And, and, and all these rules and all these laws and layers. And you're not supposed to hang out with those people. But they came to Christ. It's like, how do we reconcile that? And the church struggled with it. And then Paul goes out with Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. And you see the stories of them going out into the other places of the world. And as they go into the Roman Empire, they go to the synagogues and share the message with the Jews, those that would receive it. And then when they're kicked out, they go into the Gentile places, into the marketplaces, into the homes, into the city areas. And they talk about Jesus. And many Gentiles come to faith in Jesus. And then the word spreads back into Jerusalem that all these Gentiles are coming to Christ and they're not being circumcised and they're not obeying the law and Moses, none of that stuff anymore. In fact, it looks like Paul's leading them astray and discrediting everything we've built our life in. Then Paul comes in Acts 15 to Jerusalem and here's this big Jerusalem council where they're debating. And these are the leaders of the church, mind you, the religious, these are the, these are the apostles. And they're hearing testimony from this group of people saying, how dare these people go out and they can just come right to Jesus. That's not right. They need to come to Moses first and then they go to Jesus, but that's a racist issue. They can't become Jews first. They can come right to God as Gentiles. There was a big schism in the church. And thankfully, they figure that out. And Christianity doesn't retain itself as a small subset of Judaism. It explodes around the world. But we've always struggled as people and even followers of God with racism. And the reason I bring that up is not just because tomorrow is MLK Day, but, you know, lo and behold, the passage we're going to see has a strong undercurrent of racism if we study the culture. So open your Bible. It's in Matthew 21. It's a great piece of story text. It's about Jesus cleaning the temple. Now, if you were here with us last week, you're lying because it was just Kevin, Aaron, Taylor, and myself that were here last week videoing. But this is what we said. This is what we talked about. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem. He is now being ushered in as a king, as a Messiah. The people are so excited. They're waving these palm branches, which was a nationalistic symbol of inviting Jesus to take over as leader. They're shouting out Hosanna, Hosanna or Hoshana, which is save us now, which was a declaration. We need you to overthrow the Romans. We need you as our king. And so the whole city is in this uproar because all these people are worshiping and Jesus is coming in, not on a wild, big, huge stallion, but on a lowly donkey. And he comes in and he heads right for the temple. And this is what we see in our text. So Matthew 21, it says, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables, of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. Now, you might wonder, why is Jesus having a temple tantrum? Because that's what he's having. <laughs> he, he's upset at something. I was taught as a brand new Christian, that Jesus was upset because people were selling or buying or doing some kind of commerce in the church. And that's not the whole story. That's part of the story, but there's a bigger, deeper reason. Jesus is angry. Well, wh- why is he angry? He says to them, the scriptures declare my temple or my house 
will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. That's pretty strong language. Remember when I went to Bible college and in the men's dorm, you know, people would talk about things and I was a brand new believer. I didn't know anything. And, and they're talking about this. And, and one of the guys, Chuck, Chuck Lynn, he's a, a district attorney up in Seattle now, a real important guy. And he was, he was a brainiac there in the dorm. He's like, well, this is righteous indignation. I'm like, Ooh, I got to go look that up. I don't know what that means. Righteous. And Jesus is ticked. Okay. But it's okay because it's for a good reason. He's like, but there's only a couple righteous indignation things. And, and if you're indignant, you know, it's like, what? Just you're angry. Okay. You're, you're, you're angry. Okay. You're upset. Well, Jesus was angry for righteous reasons. But what were the righteous reasons? Because there were injustices going on with the system that the religious leaders had put into place. Now, just a quick thing, and we'll go into a little more detail in a moment. People went into the temple and they had to buy and sell in order to prepare themselves for the Passover. They had to offer their sacrifices and that involved transactions. So Jesus is upset, but he's not upset that they're doing that in the temple per se. In fact, in my church, a, a Christian group had come in from a college and they were singing and they were selling <clears throat> records and um, they were selling a record in the church. Some of you have never seen those vinyls. Cool. And um, they were selling records and the, the pastor said, you can't sell records in our foyer because that would violate this text. I'm like, that's not not I didn't know, but that's not what it's so. So you can buy a latte. You don't throw the latte at anybody. You know, you don't have to be righteously indignant unless it's a bad latte. OK, but um, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but that's not what's going on. There's a deeper issue. In fact, Matthew, we know this is a Jew writing to Jews and explaining Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, as the king. And we should welcome him. Well, and the people, of course, rejected him. Matthew's explaining the Jewishness of Jesus. So he often quotes the Old Testament. But whenever Matthew, or in this situation, Jesus quotes the Old Testament, it's helpful to go back and see what he's actually quoting. And so this is the passage of scripture Jesus is quoting. It's from the book of Isaiah 56. Now, uh, Isaiah is written six, 700 years before Jesus is born. And the people are going to be going back into the land because they've been taken away into slavery because of their disobedience to God. And God is you know, presenting a vision of what it's going to look like. He says, I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord. Who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest and who hold fast to my covenant. God says, I'm going to open my doors to non-Jews. I'm going to open my door to, to anybody in the world that wants to come in and worship me as true God. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. Now he's speaking about the temple. He's speaking about the place. But prayer, though, isn't just about, you know. Praying, prayer is, is, a, is, is worship. It, it just means that whole process of worshiping. And so he says this, I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. For the sovereign Lord, Yahweh God, that's, that's, that's the personal name for God, who brings back the outcasts of Israel, says, I will bring others too besides my people, Israel. So even in the Old Testament, especially here, you see that the Jewish people were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to be an example, an invitational opportunity to all the Gentiles. But we know from history and we know from the Gospels that what ended up happening was that by the time Jesus shows up on the scene, 
the whole worship of God had been drawn inward and only a select group of people could worship God. Only those who were not just Jews, but the worthy Jews, not the sinners, not the outcasts. And that Jesus shows up and Jesus hangs out with the worst of the worst. Jesus hangs out with Samaritans. I mean, he actually goes to Samaritans. In his parables, he makes some of the, the, the parables are great because he makes the Samaritans to be the heroes of the story, which is completely upset the Jewish people who would hear that. Uh, he hangs out with the women. Oh, that was not accepted. Women are disciples. They're, they're actually, you know, one is at his feet learning. And Jesus breaks down all these barriers. And it frustrates the religious leaders. The Pharisees, we've seen who control the synagogues out in the countryside, out in the nation. They're upset at Jesus because all the people are now following him. And Jesus isn't obeying all their silly little rules that they've added on to God's word. And they're angry at that. And then in the synagogue, it's the, the temple, the people that, uh, I'm sorry, in the temple, it's the Sadducees, the religious leaders who are now upset with Jesus because Jesus is disrupting their status quo and he risks bringing violence there by the people coming together. And if the Sadducees lose power because the Romans are going to pull it from them, then they lose everything, lose all their money. And so the religious leaders, uh, we'll call it in our day and age, the pastors, the religious leaders say of a, of a church. They decided we're going to use this system to better ourselves. And if it comes at the expense of the lowest of the low, so be it. Because we will step on those people or exclude those people so that we can get more. And that's what was going on in the temple. In fact, let me show you a picture here. I I took this picture in Jerusalem at the Israel Museum. In the Israel Museum is a scale model of what they believe the second uh, temple Judaism looked like around the time of Jesus. And it's, um, I, I, if I remember properly, it would be bigger than this auditorium. And so it's 50 to one scale and it's, it's massive and you can walk around and you could see these things. And this is, uh, what they believe the, the temple, the whole temple Mount looked like. A couple things, first of all, when Jesus came in, we saw this last week, he comes into the city and he comes into the temple. This would have been the road. He would have crossed this Kidron Valley. This is the Mount of Olives. Come around, come in. And he would have gone into the temple and all the people are worshiping. All the people are celebrating. Everybody's shouting out, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us now. Reading Psalm 18, you know, that kind of thing. It's a pretty big scene. Everybody's in the city because it's Passover. It's one of those big celebrations where everybody's required to come in from all areas into Jerusalem. And so Jesus shows up here and the temple itself is probably more likely, you know, we call this the temple, but this is the whole temple mount. This is where the Sanhedrin, the religious Jewish, uh, like Supreme Court existed. 70 uh, people there that made rules, Pharisees, Sadducees. These are the steps where Jesus probably taught. Jesus also taught in the colonnades. They, one of these is called Solomon's colonnade. And so this would be a hustle and bustle of activity. There was so much going on there because people were preparing for Passover. And so as they're coming in here, this is where everybody is. And Jesus comes in and the first thing he does is he cleans out God's house. Why? Well, okay, here, here's the story. What had happened was that they had taken the old Testament laws and understanding of here's how you worship God. And they had made it into a a pretty lucrative system. So here's how it is. So let's say uh, you live in uh, Gaston and, um, praying for you, by the way, you live in Gaston and you have to go to Portland to church. Okay. But you only go to church like two or three times a year. Cause it's like the big, big church. You have this little Gaston thing you do. That's great. Well, um, you have agriculture 
and you have, you have your, your, your crops, your livestock, you have all these things and you're following the law and you give the first to God, the first 10%, you give the best to God. And so you take your crops and you save some of that harvest. And then you take the best of the animals and, and this celebration, Passover, the lamb, the first, the, the best, and without any kind of spot or blemish. And then you are to take that all the way to Jerusalem. Well, if you're going to carry that and walk all the way to Portland, that's kind of inconvenient. And so within the law were provisions that you could take that, convert that into money, cash it out, and then take your money with your family into Portland or Jerusalem in this situation. And then you would then buy the equivalent of and then off that to God. It was a great system because Israel is a big country and you're walking everywhere you go. Well, the religious leaders, and these were the Sadducees, the religious people who controlled the temple worship. They developed a system to make as much money off you as possible. And so when you came in, you had to buy only what was acceptable for temple worship. So you would have to convert your money to temple money or the money that would be used to buy there because your money, you know, Gaston money is no good. Portland money is good. How many of you have ever converted money from one currency to another? That's frustrating because you lose it. It's like, where did it go? Did it spill on the floor? I don't know, but I have less. You know, when we go, we, uh, I'm going to hopefully get your, I have to go buy some euros because it's better to take euros or Canadian dollars into Cuba because they tax American dollars 10%. It's like 10% just like that. It's like, yeah, because you're Americans. It's like, well, I didn't do anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You're American, your money tax 10%. And then you convert it and pay the price over that. It's like, I don't want to do that. So I have to go convert money to Euro. And then I have to convert Euro into the Cuban peso. Okay. Somewhere along the line, you lose money. I would love that job. Cause I don't know how you take money and turn into money and make money, but that's a cool gig. All right. And it's legal. You're not printing it. You're just converting it. Well, they had a system. It's basically like a tax where you convert your money from your kind of money into the money that could be used for worship. And the religious leaders controlled that system. Not only that, your animal, even if you were to have brought your animal in, isn't acceptable. You have to buy the animals that we, as religious leaders, have set aside, have raised specific for sacrifice. These are acceptable sacrifice animals. And these are expensive the price of these animals is just skyrocketing. And here's the deal is that the religious people are using and abusing the system and using and abusing people to line their pockets with money. That is called corruption. And it was all the rage at the time of Jesus. Thankfully, nobody does that in religion or politics anymore, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, where does all this go on? Let me show you. This is the court of the Gentiles. This area right here and this area, there's a little bit in between. This is where the religious leaders had moved all of the buying and selling of these animals into the temple. Now, previously it had been done outside the temple, but you know, to make it more lucrative, they moved it into these areas. And so Jesus is angry that the place that was reserved for the outsiders to come in is no longer available for those people, but it's used for the insiders to make even more money. That's why Jesus is angry. Not just because the doves are pooping in the temple. Okay. It's because religious leaders have decided that our group, we need more of our group. And if we abuse our own people to get it, so be it. But worse than that, 
we are going to hold the doors shut for the outsiders because those outsiders, they, they don't need to come. They're the unclean. They're the Gentiles. They're the ones that, you know, if they want to worship God, they can find a way. But we now control all this. So Jesus comes in and in the court of the Gentiles, which was filled up with all the money changers and all the buying and selling of the animals, he comes in and he cracks the whip. He grabs the rope. He puts it together. He whips. I love this picture. None of, there's never been a children's ministry on the planet that's ever given out reproducible color in sheets of Jesus, of angry Jesus. They just don't, right? I mean, imagine that. Mom and dad, you come home. Where are your kid drawing angry Jesus? Like you're calling the youth pastor, the children's pastor. Somebody, what's going on? I don't want my kids to see angry Jesus. I want them to see peaceful with the lamb Jesus, right? But this is Jesus. He's angry. And he's angry Because people in power have developed a circle, a ring, an inner ring. And they said, we're going to keep this just for us. And anybody else? Sorry, we're going to hold you at bay. That's racism. I mean, it's nationalism. It's it's all kinds of things. But the bottom line in the leader's hearts was, we want more money. And so be it if we keep out people from worshiping God. That is wrong. And that is a sin. And that's where racism is begins in our hearts as a sin. And so Jesus comes in, makes this whip, starts kicking stuff over, and it's awesome, and he gets people angry. And no surprise that by the end of this week, the Sadducees had decided they've had enough with Jesus too. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together, and it's like, the guy's got to die because he's disrupting everything. And so this was the last of the big acts that the Sadducees said, we're done. It's over with this guy. We have to end his life. That's what Jesus is upset about. And that's what's going to follow through. Now, uh, uh, just another note here, by the way. When you zoom in closer to this uh, part, this would be the actual, the, the actual altar, the temple area. This is the court of the women. So the women were allowed. And this is, the, they believe, the gate called Beautiful. There's a miracle that goes on there in the book of Acts. And um, the, the, the ladies are in here. There's a story of Jesus saying, hey, the woman came and gave the money. You know, and so that, that's all there. And then this is the, where the men, the court of the men here. So we keep the women out a little bit because, um, you know, they're women. Wow, we can't have the women in. Um, cooties and everything. And so this is where the men are. And then this is... This is specifically the holy place and inside of that, the holy of holies with a curtain that separates and the priest and then only the high priest once a year goes into the most holy place, the holy of holies. But you notice what separates the court of the Gentiles from the inner court is this tiny little wall and it's almost too small to see, but historians say it would have been about three feet tall, about a meter tall. And there were little openings every once in a while where Jews could come through. But inscribed on the wall all around it was a message that basically said this. They they exist still. They've been cut out and and they've been saved. And they're in some museums around the world. And it's an inscription that basically says this. No Jew, I'm sorry, no Gentiles allowed to pass this wall. If you do, it's at your death. And that is a serious thing. If you're a Gentile, you come in, if you could even come in at that point, you couldn't be hard with all the money changing. You are allowed this far, but you are not allowed really in. We still have to keep you at bay. And if you remember the story, Paul himself is accused the end of Acts of taking Gentiles across the wall. And the people are so furious that they want to destroy Paul 
tear him apart at that moment. And it's only the Romans that rescue Paul. All right. And later in the book of Ephesians chapter two, Paul says that Jesus has torn down the dividing wall, the wall of hostility. See, there's a wall that's built in our hearts. And at that season, it was male versus female and men ruled and women didn't. It was free versus slave. Then, then you go to church and you're the master and the slave sits next to you and how you're supposed to respond. It was about Jew versus Gentile. Um, it was about the color of your skin. It was about your, your education. It was about all the things that we still struggle with today. And in a religious sense, people use their position of power to abuse other people. And that's wrong. And that's racism. And Jesus came to tear down the walls that keep us from worshiping God so that all people everywhere could come into his temple and it'd be a house of prayer for all people. Now, now here's why I think this applies to us. I think as a church, it's easy for us to think about what we like, what we prefer. Now, I've been the senior pastor here for a number of years, been at Sunrise 22 years. Some of you have been longer than me here at this church. That's great. I've been in other churches. I came to Christ when I was 15. So I have a long history of church experience. Probably you do too. And here's what I've observed. People love comfort. People love what they love. And when something disrupts that, they get frustrated and angry. And churches have split And divided and fought. And churches, I mean people. Over the silliest reasons. But when it comes down to it, it's because I like what I like. And I don't want anybody else coming and upsetting that. And when we focus the church on those that are inside. That's that's the end of it. It's the beginning of the end, at least. Tom Rainier, he's a Southern Baptist. Uh, He was a pastor. He's a worker with Lifeway and he writes on a research blog about this. And about six months ago, he had a great article where he said churches, and he's speaking about Southern Baptist churches, predominantly in the South there. He says, it's been observed that anytime a church focuses all of its calendar, all of its budget, all of its resources, all of its energy toward those inside the church, that's a death sentence because it's only a matter of time before that church dies. But anytime a church decides to change that and to focus on people that are not yet in the church, outside the church. That's the beginning of life for the church. And so that's a test. And I know at sunrise, we have struggled with that because I mean, I could tell you list after list, after list name after name. I mean, I wouldn't say names. Okay. Unless I was really angry. And, um, and people that have left the church because they've come in my office and said, but it's not for me anymore. It's like, when was it ever for you? Isn't it always for the lost? And then we come in and then we reach. That's what Jesus did. He left his throne of heaven to come down to pour his life out for people that were lost. And whenever the church, whether it's a church or the church around the world says, I want to be comfortable. I want my seat. I want my position. I want my parking spot. I want things on me. I want people to sing songs that I like. I want to hear sermons that I like. I want ministries to focus around me. I want everything the way I like it. All of a sudden, folks, we're at death's door as a church. And we can't succumb to that. We have to fight the urge to build the religious structure around us. Or in a small sense, we become just like the Sadducees. 
who use and abuse the system so that we could gain. But when we as a church say, wait a minute, wait a minute, it's not just about keeping insiders in, it's about going and getting outsiders and bringing them in. That's when life happens. That's when the gospel happens. And that's when God grows the church. And I tell you, we change and it hurts. We have a mantra we used to talk about all the time. Growth produces loss. Loss produces change and change produces pain. And nobody signs up for pain, right? You shouldn't at least. That's kind of weird. But when God brings growth, that means things have to change. And when things change, that means there's always a loss somewhere. And that means it hurts. Are we going to fight for what we love? Or are we going to give our lives away for those who have yet to come here? And that's the issue. Now, I want to wrap it up with the rest of this text, the rest of the story. It says then, as Jesus is doing that, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Now, you would think, right? I would think that in the very place of the worship of God where the sacrifices are made, if all of a sudden the, line, the lame and the blind are getting healed, everybody would celebrate, right? But not so. The leading priests and teachers of religious law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. He's the Messiah. And look at their response. They're angry. They're indignant. They're ticked off because how dare anybody give that kind of worship to Jesus? Do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied. Haven't you ever read the scriptures? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. Jesus was fully aware of what these kids were saying. When he was healing people, when he was driving out this you know, immorality as far as this, this issue of worship, when he was pushing it out and people were coming to believe in him as Messiah and they were falling down and praising him, that's why he came. And it was the religious leaders that opposed him. Man, let's never be that. Let's never become the religious leaders. Let's never become inside people who determine that our inner circle is the only inner circle and the only circle that matters. And we alone have the power to keep people out. That's racism. And I know none of us would stand up and go, yeah, yeah I'm racist. You know what I mean? None of us would say that, right? We wouldn't admit to that. But, but here's the reality. It's in our hearts. In some way, shape, or form, we all wrestle with it. We all struggle with something. And, and when I say racism, I'm not necessarily mean a black-white thing or a brown-white thing. I'm talking about this desire in our hearts for it to be about us and to keep other people out. So for me, I just think it has to come down to two things. One, something happens has to happen in our heart. That's individual racism. Because the trench is dug within our heart. And when it is... We have all of a sudden decided that we build a wall. And that's not to be the, the place for the follower of Jesus. So, so figure that out in your heart, okay? But secondly, we've got to do something with our hands. We've got to actually do something about it. Because there's not just individual racism. There's institutionalized racism. And that's all around us. And I know that's bigger than any one person can tackle. But I know this week, every individual in this room could do something. You could do something. You could reach across a wall. You could walk across a ditch that divides. And you could just get to know someone that's different than you. Could be a social difference. Could be an economic difference. It could be educational difference. It could be a racial difference. But if we are to be the people of God who go out after the outsiders to bring them in, we can't selectively only pick the people that look like us. We have to pick everybody. 
Whoever God brings in our midst, because if he's doing a work in their life and he's going to bring them into this house of prayer, we need to open our doors to that and open our hearts to that. And so what will it be for you and for me? I want to close with this thought, you know, as people are preparing for Passover, which is the celebration that we're going to see it. It's going to extend for a long time for us. But the last week of the life of Jesus, um, the religious leaders had picked a lamb to represent the nation. The people had cleaned their house out of all the leaven, of all the yeast that represented sin. And they had prepared themselves for this moment of worship. You know, the Apostle Paul says that in the context of sexual sin, it's a beautiful text. He says this, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, I know the context that he's talking about, but in a very general sense, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, God dwells within you. You're the temple. Is the temple clean? Would you let God come in and clean out the temple, your own heart, to prepare for the worship of God? You know, the religious leaders, they selected that lamb and they watched it over a period of days. They examined it every which way for several days to make sure it was the perfect lamb. Jesus shows up into the city of Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day, Palm Sunday. And then Jesus dies Friday afternoon at three o'clock on the very day, the very hour when the lamb is slaughtered for the sins of the nation. And that's the beauty of what Jesus has come to do for us. He's come to clean out our lives. He's come to give us a brand new relationship with God. Not based on church attendance or some kind of religious observations, but a reality that we can know God and we can be forgiven of our sins because Jesus has come to die for us. He's gone to the cross. So we now have free access to God. We can go right into the temple. We can walk right because I'm a Gentile. We can walk right through the court of the Gentiles. We can walk right into the area. I'm a guy. I can walk right in through the court of women. I can walk right into the court of men and I can walk right into the holy place and I can walk right into the holy of holies because the curtain is torn because Jesus has died for us. And he rose again and you and I now have one to one access with him. Let's keep the temple clean. You don't want him to have a temple tantrum for your life. Trust me. Okay. All right. You do the active work of letting God cleanse your temple, your, your heart, your life. After this prayer, we're going to receive communion. And it's a perfect, perfect reminder of what Jesus came to do to give his life for us by representing the bread, to spill his blood, to pour his life out for us, to cover our sins by the cup that we drink. Let's pray together. Father God, as we think about this cleaning of the temple, first of all, clean out our heart personally. If there's these racist inner ring circles, this phenomenon where we want to keep certain people out because we're better than. Lord, deal with that racist tendency in our heart. Bigger than that, Lord, cause us to move and be people that would tackle some of the bigger issues in our culture, in our community. And reach across the divides and show love through Jesus. I know we don't have all the answers. We don't even know all the problems. But if we have you inside of us, that's enough. Because you want outsiders to come in. And you want us to create a place for them. Just like the temple. So God, move us to do that. 
and clean up whatever is necessary to clean up as we prepare our hearts for that. We pray in your name. Amen.